not to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is often turned with their bones, so let it be with Caesar. The noble Brutus hath told you Caesar was ambitious. If it was so, it was a grievous fault, and grievously hath Caesar answered it. Here on the leave of Brutus and the rest, for Brutus is an honorable man. So are they all, all honorable men. Come I to speak in Caesar's funeral. Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Araslin. I'm David Daw. And this week, we are watching the second of the 1953 awards, Julius Caesar, starring-ish Marlon Brando. Uh, and definitely starring James Mason. <laughs> oh, I would almost say the exact opposite. Textually starring James Mason, but actually starring Marlon Brando. <laughs> Even screen time starring James Mason and still actually starring Marlon Brando. <laughs> yeah. So for those who love our Shakespeare deep dive episodes, welcome back. <laughs> for the rest of you, if you hate those you could just you know check out i guess but yeah this movie was it was inconsistent but it was nice to have a movie again that there are things i could talk about that i liked and mostly i liked it instead of i fucking hated every minute of this but let me find the silver lining in it which has felt very much the trend in the last couple of years of nominees <laughs> yeah I, I would say my problem with this movie is generally my problem with Julius Caesar, the play, which is I like this movie quite a bit as it leads up to Mark Antony's speech and through Mark Antony's speech. And then Act 4 and Act 5 are just kind of here. Yeah, see, I generally think the entire play is kind of boring. I think you can make Act 1 interesting. It's a little bit table setty, And then Act 2... I do want to give James Mason some credit for, like, making Act 2 seem at all interesting. Because <laughs> most of the time, you do just sort of feel like, can we get to the stabbing? And then Act 3 always fucking slaps. And then the rest of the play is one of those things where it's like, I know, like, thematically what's supposed to be going on here. That it's supposed to be about sort of how, like... History continues after big actions and you have to sort of consider the consequences and what else will occur. And instead, it's just like a bunch of like boring snippy guys sniping at each other until the inevitable like, hey, it turns out that stabbing Julius Caesar is going to go bad for us, which you do sort of think like, how did you not think that was going to go bad for you? <laughs> uh, Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I always find... I, I, I don't disagree with you at all. Like, I definitely think that Acts 4 and 5 are really, really boring. It is funny to me that I have seen, I'm not an exaggeration, half a dozen productions of Julius Caesar, and still, in my mind, every time, I'm like, oh, okay, well, Mark Antony is going to speak, and then that will be the end of the play. <laughs> and honestly, it should be, but it isn't. Yeah. I just challenge someone to someday do a production of it, and it's like, nah, that's it. That's where we end. Like, he stirs up the Roman public, everybody gets pissed, end of play. 
I mean, certainly that very last scene, I just thought this is Brando's worst moment of performance. It does not gel with the rest of the play. In this production, James Mason is really playing up the degree to which Brutus, like all men, is to some degree swayed by self-interest. Um, and so this big speech at the end of like, Brutus was the only one of them not swayed by self-interest is like, well, that's a waste of a lot of fucking acting on James Mason's part. <laughs> and it's just boring. Like as a way to tie a bow on the play, it doesn't really work very well. And like, again, I do, I don't know. I was, Nikki watched this with me, although she also just like dipped in the middle of act four, was just like, I can go, right? And I'm like, oh, totally. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Every production is that. Like, we could just end. Like, it could just be done. Yeah. And, like, I think you are right in practice of just, like, hey, there's a really tight, like, hour version of Julius Caesar that you could, like, edit acts one and two down a little bit. There's some really nice monologues in there, but it does kind of repeat the same plot beat maybe one or two too many times. Like, we don't maybe need the entire scene It at... Caesar's home in Act Two. But like the Act Four and Act Five stuff kind of has this perverse. Well, how do you make that interesting? I don't think you can, <laughs> but you know, it's, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> yeah, I. I think you could, but I think it unbalances the rest of the play. I think you have to kind of throw Mark Antony's speech under the bus if you want to make Act 4 and Act 5 really pop, and I ain't going to do it. I think you do have to do this thing where the play really is about Brutus going, like, how did this all go so wrong? Uh, And in order for that to happen, you kind of can't, in the Mark Antony speech, go like, well, that speech, like the answer to that question is Mark Antony fucking played you, my man. Yeah. You're just screwed. At that point, Acts 4 and Act 5 are just a foregone conclusion, unless you make Mark Antony's speech kind of suck. And like with Marlon Brando here, that sure as hell ain't going to happen. Uh, I'm going to actually quibble on that a little bit, a little bit, but I want to start. It doesn't suck, but I, I have a lot of problems with his Mark Antony speech. But for those who are not familiar with Julius Caesar, we should actually just, I mean, the play. I'm sure if you are not familiar with the person Julius Caesar, this is not going to help you. But the play is basically, it opens and these Romans are talking about how, oh, well, isn't Caesar actually getting a bit uh, too big for his bridges? (laughs) And... This precedes a big triumph, a parade type thing of Julius Caesar coming in after having defeated his rival Pompey. And the soothsayer in the crowd warns Julius Caesar, beware the Ides of March. Cassius, who in this is played by John Gielgud and is fucking amazing, is um, basically trying to convince Brutus that they need to kill Caesar because he is becoming a tyrant. And then Casca. There's a lot of guys in this play, by the way, who in my mind are so fucking interchangeable. Thankfully, Shakespeare writes in their names every time anyone talks to them because he probably figured that out too. (laughs) Because they don't have a whole lot of personality other than they happen to be 
in a certain place at a certain time. Casca being one of them. Yeah, and especially, like, honestly, all the conspirators and all of the, like, the name checks, there's a real, like, as they mentioned, different Roman senators' reaction to Julius Caesar. There is a real biopic thing of, like, it's me, Ray Charles, maybe you've heard of me, okay, bye. <laughs> thing that goes on in Act 2, where they just sort of mention a lot of historical personages from, you know, first century Rome. And then they all come up with the plan of like, we are going to make sure that Caesar comes to the Senate tomorrow and we're going to stab him. After Mark Antony and Casca have told them that, look, we offered Caesar a crown three times and three times he was like, no, 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 that's not for me. But that really what he wanted was to refuse it twice and then for the crowd to insist, like, no, take it, you should be king of Rome. So yeah, they all get together and they're like, let's make sure that Caesar comes to the Senate and we'll stab him. Yeah. Which does happen eventually. Calpurnia, Caesar's wife, has this terrible dream the night before and insists in the morning that he should not leave to go to the Senate. At first, he decides that he's not going to go, that he's convinced by his wife, and then some person comes in, who's another one of these Roman name checks, and essentially convinces him that he has to go to the Senate, otherwise, basically, you know, he's a coward because he believes in Otherwise, people will say you're doing what your wife told you to do. Yeah. Is the argument that actually works on him. Caesar goes to the Senate. Everybody stabs him. Yeah. Which is done actually really well in this movie. And I want to talk about that too, because I like the choices that were made there. Eventually, after everybody else has stabbed him, everybody looks at Brutus and is like, hey, buddy, are you in or are you are you not? And then Brutus is the last to stab him, which is why Caesar utters his famous line, et tu Brute, and Caesar dies. Mark Antony comes in and sees Caesar dead and everybody else covered in blood. And in a very smart move is like, hey, we're all friends. Like, I I get it. I get it. I love Rome so much that I'm okay with you killing my buddy who I also really loved because I love Rome more. So I will shake all of your bloody hands. But anyway, make sure that I can get up and do a speech. To the people, just just saying. <laughs> and Brutus, in a classic mistake, when people are like, I don't know if we can really trust this guy yet, goes, don't worry, I'm going to speak before him, so what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> right, and I'm going to tell everybody that he's speaking with my permission, so whatever he says, we'll just be like, oh, okay, well, it's fine, because they said that he could talk, so... I... Yeah. Which, yeah, Brutus is like... What a character. (laughs) Yeah, Brutus is an interestingly consistent idiot. Yes. Which I think makes him an interesting character in the canon, but also makes him kind of a weird character dramatically. And so completely unbelievable. I always feel that way every time I watch this play where I'm like, no person could be like this. Oh, I don't know. I have known, I have been that guy and I have known the like, I am going to destroy populism through facts and logic that like he tries to do in that speech and that works for five seconds until Mark Antony decides he's going to become the Joker. Yes. At which point he is just doomed. Then Mark Antony gives his speech after Brutus. Yeah. Which rouses the entire Roman public to... 
want to kill everybody who touched a hair on Caesar's head. <laughs> yeah. And then there's a war. <laughs> yeah. like <laughs> Really then, is what it boils down to. <laughs> right. And like thematically, Shakespeare tries to make it so that it is the like the nature of the distrust and conspiracy is why they lose the war, that their inability to really work together as a team, but then kind of has to admit, also though, Mark Antony just has way more guys. Right. <laughs> like, the actual reason they lose is just because Mark Antony teams up with somebody else who's barely in the play, and they're just fucked. Yeah. And then they kill themselves because they know they're screwed, and end of play. Yeah, and at some point it comes out that Cassius has bribed some people in order to be part of stabbing Caesar, and Brutus is like, how dare you? How could you possibly do this pure and noble murder of our friend? How could you sully it by paying people to go along with it? And you're like, yeah, you guys murdered your friend. This is not a noble moment. I actually kind of like and think James Mason does a good job with the idea that Brutus is like really talking himself into no i did history's one good murder like i'm the i'm the first person to do a murder and be a good guy and that i actually do find kind of interesting especially because the production does seem to indicate a couple of times that like hey no like you you're just telling yourself what you want to hear and I think that's sort of most effectively shown, actually, in the actual stabbing scene, where I think it does a great job of kind of pulling you along in Act 2 with Brutus really, like, all of these sort of justifications and the epicness and importantness of this moment that Brutus has decided in his head. And then you just kind of have to stab a guy, and it's not really dramatic. Thunder doesn't come from the heavens. It just makes some kind of gross sounds, and then you stab him some more, and then he's dead. And then you try and add some gravity to the moment with these weird rituals, and that's weird, my man. It's weird when you tell people to bathe in the blood of the guy you just stabbed. Right, that everybody needs to make sure that they dip their hands in it and really rub it in. And it's like, I, what? Huh? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I want to talk about actually how that stabbing happens in this film. Because I think that Joseph Mankiewicz, who was the director, who also did All About Eve, which we loved, I think he makes a really smart choice here. He doesn't really show the, like, oh, here's the knife going into Caesar. There's no fake blood squibs and we've got these really realistic looking knives most of that moment is James Mason watching all of the other conspirators do this. And, and we're just looking at his face and we have like a little bit of the sound effects of the stabbing and, you know, Caesar crying out or whatever. Then we cut to seeing Caesar stumble forward and put his hand on Brutus's shoulder while he's very clearly already going to die. And... Then Cassius gives him the, like, hey, are you in this or not, buddy? Yeah. And he gives that one final stab, whereas everybody else has just been, like, going to town. <laughs> and again, we don't see the knife go into Caesar. We see James Mason's and Caesar's faces. Who plays Caesar? It's somebody who we actually know or have seen before. Louis Kellhern, who was the dad in Heaven Can Wait. Yeah. And he's actually great in this 
I think. Yeah. And Caesar is a hard part in this because despite the fact that the play is named after him, he is not really the main character and he is not super likable. I think he does a good job towing the line between making it very clear that like Caesar is a powerful figure and that Caesar does in fact have some ambition to him. Mm-hmm. You can overplay Caesar really easily. Oh, so easily. There's this very small moment in like the first scene he really has lines in where he's walking out of being offered the crown three times where just right at the very end he tells Mark Antony to go over to the right side of him because he can't hear very well on his left and so many people overplay that as like the right hand of the father you see this is the (laughs) godfather giving the touch to the like chosen one and he just plays it as like the thing about power is that power just can exercise itself it doesn't care he can just tell people what to do yes And I think he also does a really good job of splitting the difference between guy who his friends know has some tyrannical ambition and guy who is still pretty charismatic to the public. Because a lot of times they go so far in the charismatic direction that you're like, why the fuck are his friends trying to kill him? This guy is great. Yeah. This doesn't make any sense. And this is very much, it's it's kind of um All the King's Men. He does a very good sort of, not quite as violent and dangerous as the lead in All the King's Men. But you get the idea of why Willie Stark's friends think he is a danger to society. And also why the public likes him. And I think that that's difficult in Caesar. I don't think that Shakespeare actually does a very good job textually of giving you that subtlety. I think that's one of the reasons why I don't love this play is there's a lot of like, oh, well, Caesar's the kind of guy who can pretty easily be convinced by nobody important that he's under his wife's thumb while also being this tyrant who would destroy Rome. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I think that this is one of those things where... I think I said this on the podcast, that after our Hamlet episode, I talked to my dad a little bit about Hamlet, and that his whole feeling about Hamlet is that if you ever resolve the central question of whether Hamlet has lost his mind or not definitively, the play kind of falls apart, Mm -hmm. because then there isn't a dramatic question anymore. And I think Julius Caesar has a similar thing at its heart, which is if you ever really resolve the dramatic question of whether Caesar was all tyrant or all friend of the people and whether the murder was justified or not, then the play kind of falls apart. And that means that textually, the play kind of falls apart. Yes. Because in (laughs) Act 4 and Act 5, you have resolved that question definitively. Yes. There is, I think, something interesting to the fact that Shakespeare doesn't really spell out what's going on with Caesar in the first two acts. But I do think it makes Caesar a very difficult role. And deceptively so, and not for a lot of reward, because you don't really get a good monologue as Caesar. No. There's nothing great about this part, and it's almost always given to somebody who's, like, pretty old, while everybody around you is, like, 20 years or 30 years younger and is... You know, it's a lifetime achievement award role. Yes, absolutely. And like you're there just for the death scene, which is pretty fun. But that's really all you get. And the death scene, you get two good lines. Yeah. It's not even like you get a death that's like textually exciting. <laughs> you just get to say, et tu brute, now Caesar falls or now let Caesar fall. Yeah. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. But yeah, I think that the stabbing scene is actually really good. There's a lot of very smart direction in this movie. And I think one of the most brilliant things about the whole movie is that apparently a lot of the sets and costumes were repurposed from Quo Vadis for this. Yeah. And used, I think, to better effect. I think they look better in black and white, to be honest with you. They do. They do. They don't look as cheap. I mean, we talked about this in the Quovatis episode of how once you get into color, you can't hide the cheapness of shit anymore. Right. <laughs> the studio wanted them to do it in color. And Mankiewicz was like, no, we're not going to do that. Because first of all, everyone's just going to go, that's all the shit from Quovatis and make comparisons to Quovatis. Which is a very big cast of thousands movie, as we've talked about. And Julius Caesar is honestly, there is one cast of thousands moment, maybe two, in this production. And they're necessary-ish. But it is a play about how all the big parts of politics happen in small rooms. It is the, like, first century BC smoke-filled back rooms play. <laughs> yeah, until the Mark Antony speech. But that, that also, whatever. Like, that also depends on how you play it. Because you can play it in line with that or a total break from that. But that speech doesn't happen unless we have the stuff that a handful of people, the decisions that they decide to make in private. Totally. That those decisions have an impact on the public, obviously but that they are not made by the public at large. Yes. And I think that, like, really all I am saying is that you can play up or play down the degree to which Brutus's huge miscalculation is that he is going to destroy them with facts and reason. That it does not really occur to him that politics is not, like, exclusively decided by people in smoke-filled rooms. That the power to raise the people and to rile them up is actually a power he has to contend with and not just making a reasonable argument to all of the reasonable men. And I think even more than that, one of the things that's actually quite interesting to me about Julius Caesar from a structural perspective, if not from me loving this play at all, uh, is that it's not just facts and reason. It's very obvious rhetoric. And in the like Roman rhetoric style despite not being in verse, it's playing on the same conventions of Roman rhetoric. Mark Antony's speech is in verse and somehow ends up being the much more emotional one. And I think it's actually very effective. It's one of the only really effective things in this play, in my opinion. Yeah. And it's why I think that the play should just end there because you've worked up to that. <laughs> yeah. There's nowhere to go after that. I, I, yes. And like, I certainly think in this movie for like that, that, that is more true in this movie than almost any production of Julius Caesar I've ever seen, because that is Marlon Brando's Stella moment. Like he goes to 11 in that speech and we can get into why you don't like it. I have some theories on why you don't like it. And I don't think they're totally unreasonable if they are what I think they are, but I also don't think I'm going to go with you on it. Okay. So first of all, I don't, uh, it's not that I don't like it. It's that I don't think that it is... Uh, I think that it... it hmm. Okay, so to back up, one, I think that Brando is actually 
overall in this movie doing an excellent Mark Antony and a very unusual one that I've never seen played before because usually Mark Antony is like this sweet angel who is so perfect and then also happens to be like incredibly good at military and murdering people but only on the battlefield yeah. otherwise he's like a naive and completely positive character and this performance gives Mark Antony a little more complexity and some more shades of gray that I think are actually quite interesting. The way that he plays the friendship scene where he's shaking everybody's hand, he gives Brutus this fucking basilisk death look as he is shaking his hand that is all in the eyes and is an example of why method acting works well on screen if not on stage because you would never have gotten that from stage because it's not even in the rest of his face but it is also a that scene a sort of small detail about this is that Gilgood was so impressed by him he wanted him to play hamlet in a production of hamlet that he would direct wanted brando to play hamlet and like that scene is such a better Hamlet performance than we got out of Hamlet. Oh, yeah. The moments in that scene where he just turns on a dime and everyone's like, did you just say you're going to kill us all? And he was like, I was just saying what other people would say. Other people would say they're going to kill you all. As It's just like, <laughs> yes. oh, that's convincingly like not in control of yourself in the moment in a way that we did not see in Hamlet. And not in control of yourself in the moment, but in control enough to bring it back and to convince other people that, no, 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 I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Yeah. I was just saying what other people might say. But apparently, James Mason was very um, sensitive about Brando's performance and was like, he is so sympathetic that he's absolutely destroying the rest of us. And like, this is Brutus's play. So can we cut a bunch of scenes that are supposed to be for Brando. And Brando was like, if I get one more fucking scene cut, I'm walking off of this production. And it reads in that moment of like, oh, Brando was borrowing from the fact that he fucking hates James Mason. And it works. Like, yeah, sometimes <laughs> method shit works. Yeah. There are a lot of plays where I think the two actors debating who is actually the lead of this play have a really clear right and wrong answer. And like egos are just like, God, just shut up. This is a play where, yes, Brutus has more lines. Brutus is the Brutus is a bigger character in this. But I think having a production of this where Mark Antony and Brutus are having a huge argument about which one is the main character of this really works for Julius Caesar. Yeah, it does. I think it totally does. And I also think that it, it that's one of the things that gives Brando's performance a little bit of this gray. And why I was actually uh, after the speech in the first part of Act 4 where they're, you know, planning the war and he's sitting down with this guy in some beautiful Quovada set <laughs> that they had shipped from Rome to California and they're like having breakfast and planning a war and it looks so much better than it did in Quovadas. Anyway, um he gives a little smile that's fucking evil. That his vengeance is not so pure. That his vengeance is not on behalf of Rome. It's I'm gonna destroy these motherfuckers and I'm gonna have fun doing it. Yeah. I like I said I'm going to become the Joker as a bit, but like it is also You're not wrong. Yeah, he <laughs> he plays 
cry havoc and let slip the dogs of war, which is a speech that is often played as the spirit of the future kind of inhabiting him. Because he says, I, I will now prophesy. And a right. lot of performances play it as a prophecy. And Brando plays it as, I'm going to make these streets run red with blood. Let me tell you what is going to happen. Is that there will be a civil war and I will kill yes. everyone. You know, he did not invent that interpretation or anything, but like he leans hard into this sort of idea that Mark Antony knows exactly what he is doing. Yes. And that there's a personal element to it. Yeah. That there's a personal vendetta against these people he hates. Not just like, oh, in order to save Rome, we must, which so often is the way that this is played. And I think it's kind of boring, frankly. Um, to the speech that he gives after Caesar's death, though. Yes. <laughs> With all of that now in place. Because I want you to understand that I actually really do like Brando's performance for the most part. He starts too high. There is almost nowhere for him to go from friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Uh, he does find one more step. You're right that he does take it to 11, but he starts at 10. And I think the thing that is very powerful about that speech is when uh, when the rhetoric of it comes off as honestly uh, well brutus is an honest man and he says that caesar was uh was ambitious so i guess we just have to take him at his word because that kind of like let the people convince you thing is very interesting to me and i think can build to the place where he got by starting there so I like the way that the speech ends. I don't like that it starts so, so, so high and so, so, so angry and out of control because it is a little bit hard to believe that Cassius and Brutus and a lot of them would stand by if that's where he started. I mean, they do have Brutus specifically say, like, I'm out, like, I'm a dip. Like, I'm not even good. Like, I'm I'm good. So you just listen to this guy. Don't follow me. But I do also think like that, like I get what you're saying. I but but I do think that like, I I do think that Brando plays starting out at a ten in a really interesting and good way, which is this is all performative within the universe. Um, that there is there is not that element there often is to Mark Antony's speech where he really was going to go along with it. He really was going to follow Rome over Caesar, but his heart just wouldn't let him. He just couldn't bring himself to do it. Whereas Brando is like, I am here to make sure that by the time I am done, you want to kill Brutus for me. Like, the, the plan here from word one is to make sure this crowd wants to kill all of the conspirators. And I think that's... I, I think you can play that with starting out as if you are a little more innocent. And I think is more, to me, is a little bit... I don't know. I like Mark Antony being a lot more strategic. And I think that otherwise Brando is playing him in a very snaky and strategic way that I like. And it is that starting at 10, starting at, I want you all to be convinced to kill this guy, not I want you all to convince yourself that you thought of this, which is the thing that I like. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I like it. I like it either way. I, I like the, I, I think it is strategic. I think he is playing it as playing it up for the crowd, 
from word one. And I think he is playing it as you got to go big. You've got to go big with the crowd. You got to go big with the people. And like, I do think that's there in the performance that like, this is not a thing he's having build because he is playing this to a literal crowd. Like he is playing to the cheap seats. Right. Which you can absolutely do by being, I'm not saying it has to be quiet. (laughs) No, I understand what you're saying, Susan. I just think that you can, I think that he is signaling something in universe that I like him signaling this way. I understand that you want it to start slow and build as him. I didn't say slow. (laughs) I don't care what adjective you're talking about, Susan. What you're talking about is a choice. And I think it's an interesting choice. I think he's making a choice I also find interesting. I don't think it's a choice. It is a choice. No, textually, it literally builds that way. It is textual that you can't start at 10. It is not textual that you can't start at 10. You can start at 10. It absolutely is. Because otherwise, why are we repeating this for Brutus is an honorable man? So, So are they all all honorable men. You can start at 10 and go to 11 on that like that is i think you can start at six (laughs) he is doing this as a political speech and in a political speech people aren't going to listen to your third fucking sentence he is doing this as if you take away one thing take away this fucking kill him and like that i like and i understand why building is the traditional choice and the choice that is more textually supported but i've also seen it like 5 dozen times that way and so i find it boring honestly and so like i think it is a harder choice to do i think it is a choice that i do agree with you does not entirely work but i went with it and i liked it because I think that it gets at something about the speech that the very, like, honestly, for me at this point, boring thing of like, I've got, I'm getting them, I'm reeling them in, I'm reeling them in, I'm going for it thing that happens with the building action is just like, I like it better as you can just hit the public over the head with a goddamn sledgehammer. And sometimes you have to. Sometimes that's the job is not doing like pretty rhetorical devices and building to something. It's just going, Caesar loved you. Caesar's dead. Fucking kill him. And like, I I was into it. I dug it as a choice and I thought it was supported by the rest of his performance, if not necessarily like the actual text of just that monologue on its own, which again, I think you are right to say is built to build. That is the that is the way to read that that I will agree I will say Shakespeare intended. Shakespeare intended that speech to build. I thought it was an interesting choice to not have it do that and I thought it worked. Okay, I didn't think it worked, but that's fine. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it worked because the repetition became difficult. It became a dark joke for me. <laughs> it became an extremely dark joke that he kept saying it. Whereas, like, before, you're like, oh, in a building version of that, you do end up going, like, each time there's a little bit of a different, there's more of an edge to it, right? There's more of a, like, oh, okay, I see, mm, what does honor really mean? What does it, what does it matter that they were honorable men? Like, whereas in this, it's just, like, this thing he keeps kind of trying to come back to and ground to go, like, no, 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 the speech isn't really about how they should just kill him. However, if you were just to kill him, that I kind of liked that. And 
I really don't want to be like, you are wrong. I just want to go like, hey, I'm not wrong either. This is a thing you can do. I think it is a legitimate choice. I think it's a hard choice. I think nobody, but I don't think a lot of people besides Marlon Brando could pull it off. And I think Brando's only like 80% pulling it off. But I really appreciated not just seeing the same slow build version of Mark Antony's speech that I've seen in every production of Julius Caesar. Um, yeah. Okay. Anyway, after the speech, then the whole movie just goes to hell. Yeah. So, well, except for that one little scene where Marlon Brando gives, like, a really good looking down evil smile when he's planning on killing all the people who killed his buddy. But honestly, not even fucking John Gilgood can make me give a shit about the rest of the. <laughs> play yeah no like isn't the brando looking down scene literally the immediate scene after it is yeah Yeah. it's it is literally like the next morning or later that day i don't know (laughs) him staring at the bust of caesar and just sort of like doing a little smile at it that is caesar right that he's yes whatever yeah and he turns it toward him and it's a very strange moment Mm mm-hmm but in a way that I think is really nice. Is it, like I read it as he's trying Caesar on for size. He's trying to see what he'd look like as a Caesar. Ooh, I like that interpretation. <laughs> I did not get that, but now that you say that, yeah, no, that is what's happening there. How would I look in a giant bust? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think that is actually a perfect moment to end this version of Julius Caesar. Like I, th- mm, th- yeah, <laughs> actually, that would be fucking ideal because that's what we know, right? Like historically, we know that Antony then ends up filling Caesar's shoes and sheets in some ways. Yeah, in Antony and Cleopatra, the sequel to Julius Caesar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that would actually have been a really, really great film and would have spared us the less embarrassing than Ivanhoe fight choreography, but still not great battle scene. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely do not think that the report on the battle in Julius Caesar is one of Shakespeare's better report on a battle monologues. It definitely is like trying to squeeze some action out of... And then Mark Antony just had a lot of guys. <laughs> like they really There was just like, so many more of them. I mean, there was just no yeah. chance. As a result, I sort of thought to myself, like, well, that'll be a good choice. Like, at least staging it dramatically, you'll be like, oh, well, there's a lot of stuff happening here visually. And instead you go, Mark Antony just had more guys. <laughs> and that's the end of that. Yeah, yeah. I think also this is definitely a screen test of time issue for me, is that the tradition of, I mean, at this point, I think it's a tradition of actually doing the research of military strategies that were used at this time. And how do we sort of replicate that on film was not there. So for me, being somebody who is not really like a giant military dork at all, but who knows about, like, the way that Roman battles worked with all of the shields and the, you know, whatever it is that they did. I don't even know the name of it, but you know what I'm talking about, where they all sort of line up and they have their shields in a... I always think of it as, like, a turtle. <laughs> yeah. And then they... they move forward with their, like, spears out through the space between the shields. And instead, they do this, like, 
some people are on horses and some people aren't. And then they just kind of like hit each other with these swords and these little shields. And it looks very medieval, which is super incongruous with the rest of the film. They also get like just what would be completely decimated by arrows before they get their shields out and just kind of go, yeah, arrows, huh? Just like arrows, like hit them and bounce off of them. And they go like, oh, that fucking that's bad. Yeah. Um, Yeah. The swords and the shields don't look very good. They're not from any particular time. There's no real fight choreography. The thing that saves it is that there are so many people that there's no one person you can really focus on for that long to be like, oh, yeah, they're literally just like kind of flailing at each other's shields, which is not how people fight. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, that for me, I'm not going to say that that brings the movie down tremendously because it is blessedly short. Yeah. It is not like, let's have a 15-minute battle scene, which I think that a lot of contemporary stuff sometimes suffers from. Or in the case of the last two seasons of Game of Thrones, is the only thing that's good in either of them. Yeah. (laughs) Which is a problem in and of itself, where the only thing that's good is your 15-minute battle scene. But yeah, I mean, it's quite short. It's not really that important. But frankly, neither is the rest of Act 4 and 5 Anyway, the suicide bit is doing the thing that I liked in Caesar stabbing, but don't particularly like in this, which is just like, ugh, and you see them from like the shoulders up, but nobody really falls down. (laughs) It's just not great. Uh, No, they really do not do anything dramatic in the staging of it. They just do the thing we complained about in Henry V of, we have horses, what more do you want? (laughs) Right. And Look, we put horses on screen. Okay, that's hard. Yeah. (laughs) Even if it was good, it ain't going to save Act 4 and 5 of Julius Caesar. Because I will say, I do think that Brando's performance just kills Act 4 and Act 5. Like, any degree of dramatic suspense or stakes or weight that is there in Act 4 or Act 5 just ain't there with this Mark Antony. Because with this Mark Antony, you're fucked. (laughs) And you know it. Yeah. And I think that's actually okay, because I don't think it's a huge loss. I think it's like sacrificing a play, a part of the play that could like, I don't know, be 20% good. (laughs) Or could be 100% cut. (laughs) Yeah. As we've said. (laughs) For sure. I do think that insofar as Act 4 and Act 5 try and keep that balancing act up at all, they sure as fuck aren't doing it in this movie, so just cut them. Yeah. Or even if you've just, like, got to do the end of this play, end of this play, cut straight from Brando looking at the statue to the battle to Brutus killing himself. Yeah. Because the scene in the tent where they're like, is our civil strife going to roll over into us? Is like, I don't care. I don't like either of you douchebags. <laughs> like, what if, like, who, like, who gives a shit? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, last thing I want to touch on before, I think we're getting very close to being able to write this movie. For sure. Is the women in this film and in this play. So generally, I mean, as... I'm sure everybody knows there are not a whole lot of women in Shakespeare, period. And so a lot of times, I think parts that are not very good at all get a lot of outsized credit. There's a lot of people who are like, oh, yes, someday I want to play Portia and Julius Caesar. And I'm like, fucking why? (laughs) This is there is no role here. But okay, like you go for it, buddy. (laughs) Deborah Kerr is giving a hell of a Portia. And I want to watch the other side of this play where I get to see just Portia be a person. (laughs) 
and she's not a favorite of the podcast, as you all know. Yeah. But getting to see her really let go of any of this kind of like prissy delicacy that she has had in every other role that we've seen her in and just be a fucking woman (laughs) is great. She's great. And she would be the best one in this film if Greer Garson didn't chew the fucking scenery as Calpurnia. (laughs) I was about to say, like, Calpurnia is a nothing burger of a part. Oh, totally thankless. There ain't a lot to it. Every part of it is thankless and there ain't much there. She's in one scene. Yeah. Well, she's in another scene, but I think she has like one line and then Caesar's like, yeah, whatever, my barren wife. Yeah, and, like, she gets more out of Julius Caesar calling her Baron than anybody, almost anybody except for John Gielgud gets out of their entire monologues (laughs) in that scene. Yeah. Like, the look she gives off of, hey, Mark Antony, be sure to touch my wife because suspicion is she'll stop being Baron because of the power of being a tribute. And she's like, this fucking shit again. And Mark Antony's like, yeah, I don't want to talk about it either. And then they like, just, like, go off. And it's great. But, yeah, I do not want to underplay Deborah Kerr. But, yeah, Greer Garson just fucking steals the two scenes she is in to the degree that she steals scenes she's not even in. Yes. That she steals Deborah Kerr's scene and they don't have scenes together. Yes. And I would not have expected that from Mrs. Minifer at all. Yeah. Like, this incredibly strong, kind of bitchy, wonderful, mean, (laughs) dramatic role could come out of the woman who was, like, the sweetest of housewives during (laughs) World War II. In the same way that the Let Slip the Dogs of War and the scene over Caesar's corpse really did make me want to watch a Brando Hamlet, this Greer Garson performance made me want to watch a Greer Garson Lady M. Yeah, oh yeah, she would fucking kill it. Yeah. She must have played it at some point, surely. Uh, Probably. I don't know how into theater she was or if she was like pretty much just film and television, but yeah, she would have been great. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, let's rate this movie. I'm going to say seven. I'm tempted to go all the way up to eight, but I honestly do think... I do th- kind of think that entire point is probably our difference of opinion on Friends, Romans, Countrymen. And, like, I'm willing to go with you on that. Like, I do think that this film has some problems. Like, I do think this Act 4 and Act 5 don't work. That may be Shakespeare's problem, but then don't fucking put it into your movie. Yeah. And I do think the sets here work better than they did in Quo Vadis, But there are a couple of scenes where you're like, okay, that's the set from Quo Vadis. <laughs> Would you have known that if you hadn't read it first? Did you know that without having read it? The only one that I knew without having seen it is uh, there's the very small scene where they're out during the storm. Yes. Where Casca hides in front of the Roman graffiti. Yes. I'm like, that's the Roman graffiti from Quo Vadis. <laughs> that is the only one where I'm like, oh, these are the Quo Vadis sets. And then knowing that, I saw like 
Oh, sure enough. And then I could see it everywhere. But that's kind of the only one I will blame on the movie because everything else, they do a good job of just going like, I don't know, it's Rome. What do you fucking want? There's not really a whole lot of ways to dress that set. Yeah, that's true. I will say also that I think that the sets were better used here, but also they were better shot. There's a lot of very interesting film choices. There's a lot of overhead stuff that then expands out to see like, oh, you know, Mark Anthony is standing in the middle of this like big marble hallway but we start very close up on him looking up at the sky or whatever the shot at the end of act one where cassius is doing his i'm about to do a big murder speech explaining what the conspiracy is going to be yes that starts with john gilgood looking dead straight in the camera and then pulls out and out and out and up until you can see the whole set. Yeah. And he's just walking. God, that shot rules. Yeah. And there's a number of really smart camera decisions that were made in here. Obviously, that worked very well for the dramatic quality of the film. Um, but also, I think, do the set a lot more justice than the extremely workmanlike, bland camera work of Guavadas. Which, like, why did you spend all this money on this set and then not play with it? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, seven. And honestly, like, that's not even me. Like, I'm not docking points for my feelings on... Because again, I think that by the end of Mark Antony's speech, we're absolutely where we need to be. How we got there, maybe I don't love the journey, but we got to the right place. And I think it's actually more interesting than when that speech is done throwaway, which can be done and is like, what the fuck? Why are we doing this? <laughs> Yeah, uh, which I do think is an attempt to make Act 4 and Act 5. I I don't know. I liked the... I will say two things. The first, I will say, is an actual sort of argument for this, and the other thing is just a thing I like. I think that monologue is the monologue you need for that final shot of everybody just fucking rioting and tearing down the set. Yes. And Mark Antony just turning away from the crowd and smiling, which... mm, Chef's kiss. Fantastic. But the other, uh, you watched Rome, right? The HBO series Rome. I started and I wasn't that into it. It has a very like, it's HBO. So here are some depressing titties problem. Yeah, (laughs) that is exactly why I kind (laughs) of checked out. But I love two things about it. One is playing Octavia Caesar as just an absolutely psychotic 12 year old. Because he would be an absolutely psychotic 12 year old. Yeah, (laughs) true. (laughs) The other is when they get to the actual murder of Caesar. It is played as much more of a political decision on Brutus and everyone's part. And it is played as them being just desperately afraid that Mark Antony is going to come and physically kill them. And when Mark Antony goes like, listen, I'm just, I'm going to, I want one thing and one thing only, and that is to give a speech at the funeral. There is literally a scene where they just go like, yeah, sure. Like, what's the worst that could happen? And then you smash cut to all of Rome rioting. (laughs) They do not do the speech at all. They go from, he's not that good of a speaker. Like, he doesn't know rhetoric. So, like, this is a win-win for us to the entire city just burning to the ground, basically. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That totally feels like a wink to the same people who love our Shakespeare Deep Dive podcast, though. Of like, y'all know how it goes, right? (laughs) Wink, wink. (laughs) Right. It is absolutely a, like... 
We all know what this is. We're not even going to try. You know that it is the greatest speech in the history of the Western world. Like, just that's what it is. Not in terms of Shakespeare's canon, but like in terms of historical significance. Its role is to be like, this is actually the most important speech ever given. And he literally burns the house down. Yeah. And yeah. I kind of am willing to go with Brando on an unconventional and probably not fully supportable choice because I think it really supports the fucking riot energy of Friends Roman's Countrymen in a way that I like. But again, I'm really not trying to argue you have to agree with me. I'm just kind of trying to elbow some room for my own opinion, I guess. Yeah, and I do think that it absolutely does the riot well. And it takes full advantage of the fact that this is a film and not a play and that you can have a thousand people tearing the city apart. Yeah. And I think a lot of the Shakespeare that we have watched before has only taken advantage of the fact that it is a film and not a play by throwing in horses. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, seven I would say watch this, actually. I would, too, with the stipulation that, much like Nikki, when you get to Act 4, you can dip. Oh, yeah, absolutely. If you want to watch it for completionist's sake, I have seen worse versions of the end of this play. But you don't have to. I know it's Shakespeare, but he's been dead for a long time. He will not be offended, I promise. Like, (laughs) you can get up and leave in the middle if you want. Most of the people in this movie are dead now. (laughs) Yeah. And they're not going to know anyway because you're in the privacy of your own home. Yeah. And so, like, the first three acts of this are really, they really whip along and are great. And if you want to... Just make it through the whole thing. It's still only two hours, which is great, but like it would be a really tight 90 if you just stopped at Mark Antony regarding the bust of Caesar. So next week, we are watching From Here to Eternity, which is the movie that you might be excited about. From Here to Eternity. We'll see what I think of it having seen it. Yeah, I mean, I, the only thing I know about it is it has that very famous scene where people are making out on the beach. Which could be in a movie that is great or could be in a movie that is terrible. It is so divorced from the rest of the film that I have no idea what. I don't even know who those two people are who are kissing. So I guess I will find out next week. Yeah. And until then. This was a play and it actually should have just been three fifths of that play. I would say actually that this was a movie more than any Shakespeare play adaptation we've seen so far. You know what? You're right. Yeah. This was a movie. It should have been even less of a play. (laughs) There. Yes. That I will agree with. (laughs) Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Noble Caesar. Almost bloody sight. Traitors. Villains. We will be revenged! That's not a traitor, (laughs) Lee!